Welcome back to this week's episode of Trillmix 2016. I'm your host, Scripps Politics reporter, Miranda Green, and joining me are the only two men that are consistently in my life, Aswin Subsang, the social media editor at The Daily Beast, and Justin Green, politics editor at The Independent Journal Review. Nice to see you guys again. We adore you too, Miranda. You didn't have much of a choice to be here, I know, Justin, but we I'm so glad of... you gave me your presence. My smile says everything. You and your your smirk over there. Uh, and joining us today, I have a, I have a third co-host over here, uh, Evan McMorris-Santoro. He's the White House correspondent at BuzzFeed News. Hey, Evan, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you very much. I'm, I'm enjoying the... Uh rise of the dc podcast this is this is like a like, like a venerable old dc podcast this trail mix right? you know i feel like we, we i was just talking about this with my editor the other day when we first got started we were one of the first you know how often do us millennials get to say anything mm-hmm. like that right what? we were one of because the first campaign show podcasts out there no no that can't be right no, i just added myself to the podcast universe we just launched no one knows anything the buzzfeed politics podcast and i gotta say already i look at you guys you got like a nicer studio here you got everything set up really well. I mean, this is nice to be in the old the old guard of the podcasting world. Well, we've been around for five minutes or something like yeah, that. Yeah, we're on so our 16th episode. Yeah. We're, that's you know, huge. old balls right now. 16 episodes. I mean, actually came in here. Yeah. I, I'm just retiring after this episode. Yeah. So. But, uh, you know, before we dive into the the, polit- the political news of this week, I think we should cheers the beers that we just opened, guys, and uh, we'll get started. Terrible Italian beers. Garbage. Peronis are delicious. Mm-hmm. Justin Justin beer. voted for it's Bush a, Light, it's so like, it's you're it's welcome. It's a beer of beers. I just want a pony keg of natty. I, I mean, Amen. I'll settle So, this. Evan, we're going to talk to you later in the show a little bit about the first topic that you talked about in your first episode for your podcast. Uh, but first, we want to talk about an important item of news that's kind of taking up the minds and soon the livers of all political reporters here in D.C. this week. Uh, this is not a campaign trail-related item, but it is something that has been political in the past. It is something that definitely is going to kind of make a mark on this week. So we figured we might as well bring it up. And I'm talking about the annual White House Correspondents Dinner, or as many of us reporters lovingly call it, Nerd Prom. Oh, I fucking hate that nickname. So Swin, since you have such strong feelings about this, why don't you describe to us what uh, what nerd prom means to you? Okay. Well, uh, before I describe what it means to me, uh, the general um, uh, cynical characterization of this weekend, which is usually Thursday night through Sunday mid late afternoon of just like relentless partying and drinking, it's a weekend where the White House Correspondents Association hosts this big dinner on Saturday where the president comes and tells all these jokes and a famous comedian is brought to like basically um, roast the president and DC politicians and media. Um, It's sort of gained a sort of sordid um, reputation in pop culture as being this like decadent, overfed, overblown situation where DC media gets to outwardly project all like those sort of stereotypes of a Washington reporter having incestuous relationships with other people in media and people in politics, the people they're supposed to be covering and holding accountable. Sure, totally, fairly too. The, the characterization is not far from the truth. And in the middle of all of this, they intermingle with the volume of Hollywood celebrities varies from year to year, but uh, oftentimes it's DC's like big taste annually of glitz and glamour and like Anna Kendrick 
selfie taking. Okay, so so Swin, essentially what you're describing there is is a bacchanal. <laughs> so the the White House Correspondents Dinner, a is black suppo- tie one. It's yes. supposed to be this and this really nice dinner for a, a chance for the the White House reporters and the politicians they cover to intermix to to get together outside of the political spectrum and have a night together and allegedly it's, to laugh allegedly at and it and it's blown up into not a one night affair but now a, a four night affair right it starts Thursday goes Thursday Friday it's all all day and night Saturday and then there's of course the brunches that we all stumble into hungover on Sunday yeah well you know the interesting thing about the White House Correspondents Dinner is that like so many things it is theoretically about the kids is the reality. <laughs> It's supposed to be a scholarship dinner hosted by the White House Press Associate Correspondent Association, which is the association of all people who are in the White House. When you watch uh, one of those briefings, those are all Correspondent Association members, most of them. And in theory, this is supposed to be their annual sort of awards dinner and scholarship dinner. The money raised from the dinner goes to creating scholarships for more people to become reporters down the road. Um, and it just sort of metastasized, as you mentioned. Now it is also a place to showcase your media property, be it a new media property that you want to show off your cool newness or your old media property, you want to show off your like stayed kind of like connectedness and like how inside the game you are. So you have a lot of people trying to get both. This is probably the only time this ever happens that you want to get both the hottest movie star and the secretary of agriculture (laughs) in the same room to show how powerful you are. It's probably the only place in the earth, on earth that happens. And if that does not ex- describe to you what this weekend is like, I don't think of anything better that does. Sure. And don't get me wrong. Like, a lot of the criticisms leveled at, like, the decadence and sort of moral depravity of this whole four-day, three-night-long enterprise are completely justified. But from a personal standpoint, I actually fucking love it. Like, it's just so much fun. I'm just a little piglet every year this rolls around because there's all this, like, free booze and party hopping. Mm-hmm. And But I will say that last year uh, there was an especially profound version of the criticisms leveled towards DC media when this rolls around. Last year, like, on the Saturday night when the dinner was underway and all the partying was in full swing, Baltimore had just started to erupt into riots. Yeah, this is this is after the Freddie Gray death right yes, at the hands yes, of yes. policemen, and Baltimore was not having it. Exactly, and uh, DC reporters took a lot of flack for there being split screens that Saturday night of Baltimore really starting to erupt and set itself on fire uh, right next to all these DC media reporters who weren't that far away um, in like black tie and very nice gowns and cocktail dresses, drinking themselves into oblivion. So it was a perfect encapsulation of the DC bubble and uh, the self-obsessed quality that is often projected onto DC media um, set against the backdrop of this uh, terrible Baltimore riding. So Jon Stewart, the comedian from The Daily Show, actually did a segment on this last year where he made fun of these two things, and I want to play that for you. Mm. Hey, everyone's whining and dining, and this is happening 50, 60 miles away, so you can't ignore that. No. (laughs) You can't ignore that. And yet... On a more somber note, this is what people want to hear about, and this is what people are talking about, are making sure to use the same hashtag because they want to be a part of that conversation. Yeah, it's important. Um, I do want to get to the red carpet. No! Right there! Right there! All right, so, uh, you know, that was Jon Stewart's take. Uh, What's yours, Justin? 
honestly, I, I I don't recall this happening last year. I will I, I will cough up to the fact that I don't recall this happening last year, and I just remember upon Googling it the next week, which is maybe more of a self-indictment than anything else on this planet. <laughs> Justin, on what level of drunkness were you during last year? I wasn't. I was, I was fairly composed. I just was not paying attention to my cell phone. I suppose for once that's a sign of a decent party because usually I'm sitting there reclusive in a corner like the person that I am. Not very cool. You're the most interesting girl at this table, Justin. Always. I mean, I mean, I think that John Stewart clip really summarizes it very well, which is that this thing for reporters is very hard to defend, but is also uh, for reporters very hard to avoid. Outside of the the celebrities at this event, you know, the White House Correspondence Center, as, as Swin mentioned, has kind of made headlines in the past. But there's one that particularly stands out to me, uh, especially how it relates to a certain candidate that's running right now. Uh, back in 2011, there was a standout moment when Obama took the stage to do his typical roast. And this was the same year that he was running for his second term. And Donald Trump just so happened to also be in the audience. This is Donald Trump, who was kind of headlining the birther movement at the time, was the one calling for Obama's birth certificate to come out. And he did. He just released it right before this this moment. So I'm going to play for you that clip. He actually spent five minutes. We're not going to play the whole thing, but five minutes of the beginning of his speech just roasting Donald Trump as Donald Trump sat there awkwardly kind of chuckling, but probably mostly just putting him on his hit list. So let's watch that. The state of Hawaii released my official long-form birth certificate. Hopefully, that this puts all doubts to rest. But just in case there are any lingering questions, tonight I'm prepared to go a step further. Tonight, for the first time, I am releasing my official birth video. Now, I warn you, no one has seen this footage in 50 years. Not even me. But uh, let's take a look. I mean, it was fabulous, right? It was absolutely fabulous. So obviously, then yeah. it pans into being footage of the Lion King, which just says so many and things you know about what's, what's you know been lobbed against it, it actually, this is the earliest instance I can think of the Beltway declaring Trump's ambitions to be dead. Like now that we've done that, now that we do that every six weeks now, it seems to be like the idea that, that right. the, the, like, the media calendar. But I actually interviewed Trump because it, I mean, it wasn't just, so Obama just, eviscerated Trump. And then Seth Meyers, who was the uh, MC that night, he also went into him, too. The whole thing was about Trump, essentially. And I talked to Trump afterwards, and Trump did this whole, like, I was like, what did you think of the jokes? And he was like, well, I didn't think it was very funny, you know, like, kind of like thin-skinned Trump-type stuff. But it's funny to imagine, because I, I remember my editors um, saying, look, there's no point in covering, like, we don't care about this interview you did with Trump. We don't care about any of this because, like, Trump's not going anywhere. He's been destroyed by Obama. Oh, my God. People were saying <laughs> that. Just to imagine to... that now. But what's so interesting about this is that a lot of people have now looked back on this moment and said this was maybe the key instance where Donald Trump was like, I'm going to run against the Democratic ticket. You know, I'm going to run for president. And I think it's actually really funny looking back at this, this video. Um, I'm going to play the end for this because it's just... 
looking at this in 2011 and now looking at, you know, the political spectrum now with Donald Trump actually looking like he's going to get the Republican ticket is just so it's just mind boggling. Donald Trump is here tonight. Now, I know that he's taken some flack lately, but no one is happier. No one is prouder to put this birth certificate matter to rest than the Donald. And that's because he can finally get back to focusing on the issues that matter. Like, did we fake the moon landing? What really happened in Roswell? And where are Biggie and Tupac? So, Evan, you know, as, as the White House correspondent, I mean, right. how much do you think that this could have actually been the impetus for Trump to get back out the next day and say, fuck them all? I mean, shit, I don't know what the impetus was. I, I, I think that at the time, it was pretty amazing because at the time it was such a moment. I thought I had, I literally thought, because after, after the year of the birther thing, I thought I had witnessed like one of those like at long last, have you no know, sense of decency, sir, kind of, you know, McCarthy takedown moments, like like something like, oh my God, I've been in the room for this crazy thing that just happened. And Trump just kind of came right back out the next couple of weeks, was a political analyst again, and even started talking about sending his like crack team of researchers to Hawaii to research whether the birth certificate was real or not. And he, he, he just weathered the storm, actually, in a way that I think looking back on it, we should have been more uh, aware of. I think that the, I think that, that, that the press did actually fail on this because there was a thought that he'd been humiliated. And maybe this is because all the press is in the same room and all the press is watching the same thing and everybody's in a tie and everybody's having a great time that maybe it was like, oh, well, there's no way he can survive this given the fact that, you know, uh, not very many people in America actually see the White House Correspondents Association right. dinner. And that's not who Trump was ever talking to or the people in that room. Um, so it's funny to think of it now because when I did see it, I did really think that I had seen one of the most lasting and amazing takedowns in American <laughs> political history, and I had not seen that. All right, guys, so we just talked a lot about the glitz and the glamour coming to D.C. this week, but what about the glitz and some of the moolah that the presidential campaign sees every year? Uh, I'm talking right now about fundraising. Uh, in the lead-up to this campaign season, many pundits expected that this would be the year of the super PACs. Following the Supreme Court's decision on Citizens United back in 2010, uh, the expectation was that money would kind of be the key influencer going into this election. Uh, but Evan, you talked about this on the first episode episode of No One Knows Anything. Uh, what really ended up being the case this year? Well, uh, the big surprise of the story of fundraising, because we thought that the story of fundraising, the biggest story was going to be probably this $100 million that Jeb Bush ra raised super quick for his uh, super PAC. Just an unbelievable amount of money raised very quickly before he even announced this whole thing. But it turned out that the money that actually uh, was the most uh, memorable money raised were these $27 average donations that Bernie Sanders raised. This is a guy who, flying in the face of all political convention, um, went out to the grassroots and said to his supporters, I need you guys to give me the money to compete with uh, the Democratic establishment. Much to everyone's surprise, they actually did stand up and actually do it. It was actually possible to do that. I mean, I spent about a year covering Bernie um, on his plane and in his buses and everything. And the guy has everything that every candidate has. He has a private plane. He stays in nice hotels. He's got a huge staff and all this stuff. 
And that's all paid for uh, with these little donations. I mean, the average being $27. So what we did in the podcast was explore kind of how weird that was. Because, look, it's important to recognize the story of money in the election is still a story of, like, very wealthy donors having ways to get a large amounts of money into politics. Whether whether you like that or not, or think it's a problem or not, that's still something that's very, very possible. But the most interesting story that surprised us more than anything else was, I think, this idea that you could raise a competitive sum just off of um, essentially uh, having a good message and a lot of supporters. And it's also that idea, too, right, that that voters are compelled by this message that, you know, we're not going to take large sums of money. We're not going to take influential sums from whether it's corporations or, you know, high, high spending donors. We want it from average people. And so this is something that we saw kind of on both sides of the table. This isn't just a Democratic issue. Donald Trump has been saying the same thing. He's been self-promoting, you know, and self-loaning kind of throughout his entire campaign. Um, But it's not that there hasn't been large sums of money raised, right? I mean, the New York Times actually just compiled some numbers last week, and I was looking at them today. Uh, Clinton has $267 million raised. Sanders has $185 million raised. Cruz is at 140, and Trump is at 51.4. But keep in mind, he's also self-funding. So... Is, quote unquote self funding. He's, yeah, he's loaning money yeah. to himself, whatever whatever that means. But so so those numbers are kind of nothing to laugh at. No, but they're huge. They're, they're, they're still enormous <laughs> sums. But yeah. why is this election different than expected and maybe different than you know previous elections? Well, I'll tell you. So there was a general agreement among basically everyone that ran for president that campaign money had to be raised as much as you could from wherever you could get it. Uh, as quickly as possible, but you never really wanted to talk that much about where the money came from. Even like Jeb Bush, who raised, I mean, look, there, people, a lot of people don't have any problem with campaign fundraising the way it works now. This is not necessarily like a, like a universal evil. Everyone agrees is terrible, but it has been pretty true in polls this year that having money from billionaires, uh, raising money from wealthy people is just not a great campaign storyline, which is one of the reasons why Trump has done so well because he's able to say, look, I have all this money myself. No one can give me money or no one needs to give me money. So I can't be bought or whatever. So Sanders did the same thing. So I, I believe it's actually a similar storyline on both sides. One, Trump can talk endlessly about where his money comes from because it's always a net positive for him, right? I raised this money going out and dealing with China or whatever he talks about. His banking China. and everything. China. <laughs> um, actually, Sanders also says China. So we can, we can use that as our transition. <laughs> China, uh, as Bernie Sanders also says... Um, he can go out endlessly and say, look, I have all this money. I do need all this money. I, 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 I want to buy those political ads that you hate. I want to do all this annoying stuff that you don't like. But um, look at how great it is where I got this money from. That is something that Hillary Clinton can't do because she doesn't really want to mention like, well, I was just at Wall Street yesterday and I made a ton of money. And Bernie and, 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 and Jeb Bush couldn't be like, well, I have all these people who give me all this money and, they, and we don't want to say work and they don't want to say they've given it to me. They want it to be anonymous. That is that was sort of a, a gentleman or gentlewoman's or gentleperson's agreement in politics was that you'd raise a ton and you'd kind of just say, all right, we, you know, it's a necessary evil. We won't talk about how bad it is where it comes from. But Bernie is able to do that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm interested in what this says about kind of the Republican Party. Uh, Justin, you mentioned to me earlier when we talked about this that it kind of has 
indicated the Republican Party has been struggling to deal with the idea that, you know, this campaign is just very different. And, you know, you can't follow the money like you used to in expecting who's going to be the front runner. Right. Jeb Bush's campaign is probably the biggest example of the limitation of big money. He had $162 million before he dropped out of the race in South Carolina. And he didn't do very well. (laughs) I mean, sit back and like, I would go back to 2012, but you could even think back a year ago. People, a lot of storylines were like, "Who's going to get Sheldon Adelson's money?" And like, "Who's going to like lock down?" Yeah, who's going to lock down these huge billionaires? And that has largely been non-existent. You have seen these strange and like, I think undercovered like boutique super PACs that have been employed by a few of the candidates, like primarily like a Rick Perry and a Ted Cruz, where you have different donors going into different super PACs, going into different purposes. But they've largely been sideshows in a year when a lot of the money has been hard money. I mean, did not Bernie raise what like forty million bucks last month? Yep. Which in, is in many just months in, he's outspent Clinton or I mean, outraised Clinton. And his his campaign, you 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 sort of see like a lot of campaigns where they raise a ton of money and then they like keep trying to like sort of match. The Bernie one went like it just like it built and built and built and built and built, and that was. You know his his votes didn't build and build and build and build. Oops, but it <laughs> it, it yeah, was well, there is that other side of it, right? Yeah, you, know, you do. You're the main problem. You ultimately have to like get people to vote for you. But it was it was different this year to come in expecting the 2012 style, where like you know you had Newt saying like I'm going to get this, I'm I'm going to get all this money real quick, and we're just going to go for it, or Santorum going for the same game with like a Foster Freeze. Th- those names are largely non-existent this year, and they're not players in the same universe. And so you have the possibility of functionally unlimited money, but you don't really see that playing out. It's kind of like we're seeing two different spectrums of this, right? We're seeing both candidates utilizing the same idea. And for Donald Trump, it's working out really, really well. The votes are following with the the narrative, as you said, Evan. Mm -hmm. With Bernie Sanders, the narrative maybe propelled him, maybe gave him that momentum that everyone wants to talk about. But something kind of interesting from your podcast when I was listening to is the fact that some of his donors are actually very strategic about the way that they donate, right? I think one of the the, the men that you talked to yeah. talked about how instead of giving him the full 200 up front, he kind of gave it to him in increments. What yeah. was the kind of the reasoning behind well, that? Well, we did, we did a deep dive into all this fundraising data that uh, Sanders has available from using his uh, – from his small dollar system. And we found out that there were 29 people who have given to him at more than 100 times. Now, they can't give significantly more than anybody who can write a big check to Hillary can. They can give $2,700. They can give the federal limit. But this guy doled it out in this more than 100 donations because every time Bernie wanted to show how powerful he was, he would come out and say, look – I need you guys to give me $10. I need you guys to do it by Thursday. So he could come out and then say, I got all these donations. That's right. And so this guy would do that, just dole his money out slowly so as to showcase or suggest, I guess, that Sanders had this amazing ability to pull in tons of cash whenever he wanted to. So he had one donor giving him $2,700 but doing it in a way that made it look like he you know, had the power of – a hundred donors, basically. And did you for did, the I mean for the media narrative? I mean, it's so interesting to me because usually you think people who are donate who are donors are more likely to you know they're more active voters, so you're going to get more voters behind that. Donations kind of indicate the turnout, but in this instance, you know, we're seeing that we're we're seeing more people donating money, but it doesn't actually translate to the polls necessarily. It's really hard to make that uh, case in the primary and caucus election cycle because of how weird it is to vote. It's so hard. It's so easy 
to give Bernie Sanders ten dollars. It's the same as like paying for something on Amazon. You go to his website, you put your credit card in. It can stay in there forever. You can register your credit card with Bernie Sanders and just press one button and give him ten bucks anytime you want to. I mean, we met a guy who gave him a dollar a day from his credit card, just recurring payment, right up to the limit. Um, but we do, but it's, but it's very hard to vote in primaries and caucuses most most of the time. So I think that there is a way to correlate uh, huge donor base and small dollar donations to votes. But it's harder when uh, people who may be interested in giving turn around and find out they can't actually vote in it. So essentially you're saying if we could text message vote, then maybe it'd be working to both of their favors. But because we can't vote as easily as we can send a $1 donation to at Bernie Sanders or whatnot, then that's kind of what the reality we're in right now. I say that's exactly right. So, uh, you know, asking you guys this question, I mean, do you think, how do you think that fundraising is, is going to be different? Do you think it's going to change at all in the general? Do you think that, you know, this is going to be kind of the norm going forward, you know, if the, the elections, you know, 2020 and on? Um, no, I, I'm not sure if it's going to change this election or even four years from now or four years from that. I mean, we're still working under the standard operating procedure of money talks and, you know, who could blame the average politician or head of a super PAC for thinking that. Um, but what I do think this represents is something that we sort of saw in the 2012 election, which was the first big post-Citizens United presidential election, where people were worried, particularly on the left, with people like the Koch brothers buying this election. And it turned out that they weren't able to. And uh, in this one, we're seeing like the 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 um, premise of, you know, the big money super PACs and all this money flooding into the elections, not being able to control the insurgent campaign of, say, Donald Trump on the Republican side. I, I mean, I'm obviously no Donald Trump fan, but I do get some comfort out of this in thinking that, my God, maybe in our democracy, money does not corrupt everything. Sometimes the will of the people is too much, and that's a good thing, even when it gets behind a demagogue like Donald Trump. All right, so fundraising isn't limited to Washington insiders. In fact, Hollywood is notorious for also hosting numerous fundraisers to support presidential candidates. And with the California primary coming up in June, uh, many politically oriented folks in Tinseltown are meeting to try to generate momentum around the specific candidates that they want to win. Uh, Swin, you did some recent reporting on the Hollywood dwellers uh, who are backing a very unlikely candidate, Ted Cruz. Uh, Want to talk to us a little bit about why Los Angelinos are, uh, you know, cruising for Cruz? The story I wrote about was about the pro-Cruz, heavily pro-Cruz faction of Hollywood conservatives, right-wingers in the film industry, activists, executives, rain-making fundraisers, uh, fundraisers, uh, people in Hollywood who care very deeply about the conservative cause, who are pro-Cruz and anti-Trump, who have realized that, my God, the June 7th primary in California could actually matter. This has not happened for a Republican primary in a long time. And not just not... Because usually by then, mm -hmm. it's decided. And they not just matter, it could go for Trump, <laughs> right? Yes, yes. And uh, Trump's numbers are pretty damn strong in California. So this pro-Cruz contingent of Hollywood Republicans are trying to do everything they can I'm not at all saying this is going to be the silver bullet or be successful, but to try to help to hand the primary in California to Ted Cruz instead of Donald Trump, because that might actually matter. Okay, so beyond the fact that as a as a 
as an actual born and raised Los Angelino myself. I lived there until is I was that, 10. Is that what you guys call each other? Yes, that's a thing. A Los Angelino. Los Angelino. Honest, honestly, it's a you terrible sh- name. You should fix that. Okay, well, you know what, Mr. Nebraska? You can you can hold <laughs> your tongue. But, you know, as I'm just saying, you know, I'm, I'm shocked that there are Ted Cruz supporters in the very liberal-leaning Won't you surprise the city? Republicans, period? Well, that, that, that's another topic. That's another uh-huh. topic. But, but in addition to that, I mean, something interesting about your story was the fact that Ted Cruz has been honing in on this group for quite oh, yeah. some time, right? So yes. what was that all about? At least since 2013, Ted Cruz has been going to visit the secretive Hollywood fellowship known as Friends of Abe, as in, like, Republicans and uh, right-leaning individuals in the film industry out west. Um, he has been visiting Friends of Abe for years, um, including one time, I believe in 2014, when he addressed the group in a speech calling out the McCarthyite efforts of the IRS and Obama administration to suppress the free speech of Hollywood Republicans and Friends of Abe. So uh, Hollywood support is definitely something Ted Cruz has been trying to get in on since early on in his Senate career. And to his credit, more so than any other Republican presidential candidate I can think of right now. Why is that? Um, I can't really see into the heart and mind of Ted Cruz right now, but my guess is that like other Republicans who have swung by to speak to Friends of Abe, which include Donald Trump, Marco Rubio, Carlo, Carly Fiorina, the list goes on. Um, so how secret is this group? Or like, who how are, secretive well, is who, this group? Who are these secret, people? Just so follow much the secret. motorcades to wherever they... Well, uh, secretive is a better adjective right, than okay. secret. Okay, so like, who are some the, of the members, right, that uh, they're pandering towards? The highest profile members include people like Patricia Heaton, John Voigt, Gary Sinise, Clint Eastwood, Kelsey Grammer. You know, the yeah. Hollywood Republicans. We all remember Clint about. Eastwood. Oh, yeah. I love all of them. That chair moment. And we do uh, never forget. It. And, uh, Clint, <laughs> Clint Eastwood is being aggressively courted by both <laughs> supporters of Ted Cruz and supporters of Donald Trump. Including um, Ann Coulter, who is maybe Donald Trump's biggest national booster and surrogate, who is going around Hollywood talking to people in the film industry, trying to get them on board the Trump train. So, uh, yeah. So if Clint Eastwood comes out and endorses either Cruz or Trump, that would be a big victory for uh, uh, certain contingents of the Hollywood conservative world, however small a clique that may be. You know, how do we think this is actually going to help him going into the state of California, right? I mean, he looked like he was potentially going to go in stronger than Trump. Trump is now leading in the state. Do we think that really Los Angeles is enough to give him a bump? Do we actually expect him to win any of the counties in Los Angeles? I mean, what does this mean? In Los mean? Angeles? Yeah, he should win Los Angeles proper. Uh, the the like the most respected poll in the state, the field poll, suggests that Trump is, I mean, I, I think Trump is probably going to win the state of California. Uh, but California, again, is 54 miniature primaries. And you're likely to see Trump do very well in the more blue-collar parts of the state. And you're likely to see Ted Cruz do mo- very well in places like Orange County, where, like, God bless you, fraternity brothers from Orange County. But, like, it, it's not the most, like, connected to, like, in-state California. The, like, only Republican stronghold on the coast, basically. Right. So, obviously, California is still a while away. But we have a lot to ponder between now and then. And uh, maybe Hollywood will actually have its effect on the race. So uh, leaving that in our minds as we end the show, it was great having all three of you guys on. Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully, we'll have you on later. And, uh, you know, just to remind all the listeners out there, Evan is the new host of his new show by BuzzFeed, No One Knows Anything, which I can definitely say is something that all three of us, Justin Swin and I, agree on many times. <laughs> Cannot confirm nor deny. I would deny that. (laughs) 
All right. Well, uh, with the, until, with the until the next, actually finger. Till the next time, guys. Have a good one. Cheers. You too. Thanks. Comics 2016 is a production of Scripps News out of our Washington, D.C. Bureau. You can follow us at Twitter at TrailMix2016. We post a lot of extra little tidbits and things we talk about on the show there. You can also follow me at my Twitter handle, Miranda C. Green. And make sure to rate us on iTunes. Any extra stars or any extra little ratings go a long way. Thanks for listening.